1: Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And in this week's New Statesman podcast, we'll be charting Jeremy Corbyn's journey from 2.0 to 2.0. We'll have Donald Trump's golden shower. We'll have Julia in to discuss who her backbencher of the week is. And you ask us what is going on in Northern Ireland.
2: So, Stephen, do we really have to talk about urine?
1: I just like readers to know that we've actually had several takes of that joke. (laughs) And I didn't find it funny the first time. And actually, I can feel my heart beating slower in a bid to not have to survive that joke.
2: Okay, that's fine. We won't. I won't make you listen to that joke, Ken. Although I do have many others. But let's talk about Corbyn first in that case. So, there was a briefing over the weekend that he was going to be like Trump, tying everything that we're going to talk about today together. Because he was going to, like, just, like, face down the media, yeah? And, like, say, call people out. He wasn't going to try and curry favour. And he was going to be populist. And then he went on the Today programme and... I think, you know, could have talked about the NHS crisis, given that that was on the front pages that morning. Could have talked about his speech later on the day about free movement, in which he said that Labour was not wedded to the principle of free movement. But he kind of just sort of decided to, which very trumpily, spitball a little bit about his idea for a high pay cap. Which by the end of the day resulted in a policy that I thought was not absurd, but was kind of, I think certainly caught everybody slightly on the hop.
1: This might be me being hugely wrong because the entire world disagrees with me from kind of the left to the right, but actually, I think it's possible to overdo slightly this. oh, the Tories were on the back foot over the n h s then Jeremy changed the subject. What a howler the n h s is one of the few areas where labor still has a lead in terms of what it is more trusted to look after than the conservatives and if they if the n h s as it is threatening to do at the moment does properly keel over, people are going to notice even if Jeremy Corbyn is on TV on a unicycle juggling fruit, right? I that think would be awesome though There's an extent to which it's only useful for the opposition If the NHS is in a mess If it has fixed its problems elsewhere And I think it can be very tempting when you're the opposition And it's hard to make news To cling on to whatever passing bit of driftwood You can find So I'm not actually sold on the, the argument That people are making That it would have been better for him just to just like go Oh the NHS is in crisis Partly because I think the, the mistake a lot of left-wing people make About fighting campaigns on the NHS Is that at any given time most people aren't ill and yeah. they just assume that the N eight. They're like, oh, I'm I'm distantly aware that it's it's crowded and it's it's on the morning news and between the the music yeah, and the music and all of that kind of thing. But people kind of are optimistic and they sort of assume that when they get sick, obviously I'll be fine, right? And then if you're seriously sick, you're preoccupied with being sick. And once you've recovered, you don't want to think about what it was like to be horrendously ill so actually the
2: yeah I think that sort of I think that analysis might slightly miss the say 40 50 something child of an elderly parent who for whom they're not the one that's sick right but they're constantly dealing with NHS problems or you know I mean I know you know there's a sort of rubric isn't there that like 80 percent of GP's time is taken up with 20 percent of chronic patients so it is it is inevitably a small amount of people what I thought was the two things I thought of, the, of Jeremy's 2.0 relaunch that I thought were really interesting. One, when even when YouGov asked the question about a high pay cap of a million pounds, right, which was not a figure that Jeremy Corbyn put on it at all, that policy still had 31% support, and actually quite a big don't know on it as well. So better than Labour's current poll rating, which is, was interesting to me. I did not think it would be that high. And the second thing was that by the end of the day, you know, they started talking about putting... Um, anyone who bids for a public sector contract would have to... Their, the top pay could only be whatever it is 20 times multiple of the lowest pay, which was... Kind of sweet because it reminded me of, do you remember Ed Miliband? Do you remember like pre-distribution? strikes a distant chord. And do you remember the fact that a lot of that was about the fact that they were going to get people who bid for public sector contracts, you know, to only be able to pay the living wage and stuff like that? It just made me kind of nostalgic because it's part of my thesis about Jeremy Corbyn slouching towards Milibandism uh, being the kind of theme of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party so far.
1: Well, it turns out that effectively the 2015 leadership election was actually a contest between Northern Millerband, Female Miliband, Miller Woke Miliband and Liz Kendall. But this I'm going to get boring and wonkish here. The problem with pay caps is you have all of the political argument that you get for just increasing people's taxes, right? Blah, aspiration, oh blah, won't all the good footballers leave the Premier League? But at the end of it, if you win the argument, you've capped the pay, people aren't being paid anymore, and therefore you can't tax it. I'm, so I'm not entirely clear why you'd want to do it when you've got to have the same back that you'd have if you went, I'm just going to tax, seventy percent tax, over tax ta- a 70% average, yeah, tax. A million, yeah. Pay differentials, have I think actually are a reasonable policy, particularly as far as public sector procurement is concerned. You know, as, as Jeremy pointed out, if you have a, a 20% ratio, you can still be paid 350 grand provided you are paying your lowest paid staff a living wage, right? It's not an unreasonable policy ask. And in terms of the arguing about the Overton window, which is not something I personally am quite sceptical of. Yeah, I don't think that is how political change actually happens, but in terms of of that idea, it does at least create a space where if someone starts by going, I'm for pay caps, it does at least allow someone to seem reasonable purely by going, Well actually I think maybe we should just have like a land tax.
2: Yeah, I thought that. I thought, you know, actually, if there's any point to what people wanted from Jeremy Corbyn, it was that he wasn't going to be kind of bound by how's this going to play in Nuneaton, right? They wanted him to kind of espouse some things that were genuinely radical that hadn't been said For years in British political. I mean, you know, I think something that George is always fond of quoting is the fact, you know, under Margaret Thatcher, we had a top tax rate that was higher than it was now. If you talk about tax, where the debate, the narrowness of the debate is quite, is kind of slightly astonishing. Do you think it will work? That's my fundamental question about Corbyn 2.0. Is there a left wing populism to be had?
1: Well, I mean, I don't know, to be honest. So, on the one hand, you have got this problem that throughout Europe and actually to a lesser extent in the United States, obviously. Their nativists did win, but he only won because of their weird electoral system. But throughout Europe, the nativist right is eating into the left's vote share. It means that when the left is in power, it's in power in very weak coalitions, or mostly it's not in power at all. So you've clearly got to do something about this hostility towards immigration, this culture warden's going on. What Jeremy is trying to do is he's trying to find a way of, of matching that without necessarily bending the knee to anti-immigration nationalist or, or atavist sentiment. So kind of hopefully it does work because it's sort of the last thing left now, isn't it? Yeah, because the idea is basically the theory runs that the right is succeeding by saying making left-wing noises and then doing and coupling that with some very right-wing things. And so maybe you can win by having some right-wing noises and doing some left-wing things. I think the difficulty is, say what you like about Nigel Farage, and I have many unflattering adjectives for him, he does sort of successfully embody that political marriage. Jeremy looks so uncomfortable whenever, so kind of, the the immigration stuff which we'll we'll, let, we'll let's get onto in in a bit as well right i'm not really sold on the idea that the electoral case for that is as strong as many people think it is but the one case i know definitely doesn't exist is the the labour position of we kind of think you don't like immigration So we've decided to meet you halfway on this, but we're going to look really uncomfortable doing so. Well,
2: that's Milibandism, isn't isn't it? I mean, this is what I mean about it. It's controls on immigration as a mug, but obviously an an uneasy leader trying to kind of talk about immigration in a way that you can tell that he's worried that he comes off as being kind of nativist.
1: Yeah, and I also think one of the... I mean, there are lots of reasons why the left in old Europe has been more and more discomforted by immigration issues. But my instinct is one of the problems is that crime has fallen throughout the developed world. And what you could do if you were on the left, if you say that there's a political palette and one of the tastes is sort of rage, is not the kind of left-wing offer for rage was, we're going to be really tough on crime. Because you actually can tough be... On the causes of crime. But, but this is the thing, you can reduce crime in ways which are genuinely left-wing, right? You can just say, oh, you can say, oh, isn't it awful, this shouldn't happen, I completely agree. And you can be entirely sincere about it. And then you do things which are actually compatible with left-wing values mm. that actually reduce crime. The difficulty with immigration, right, isn't – I get how you can go, oh, there's a progressive case or, oh, we're not wedded to the principle of free movement or any of that noise, right? But it's quite difficult to work out how you actually keep those promises in a way which doesn't shred your values and harm the economy. And I think that in some ways it's back in that trap of, oh, are you Holland or are you Miliband, right? Can you Do you just lose or do you win on this contradictory platform that you can't govern from? You get into office, your popularity collapses and the right wins. Whatever happens. Although that
2: said, did you see the very exciting polling that's come out of France showing Macron is not that far behind Le Pen and Fillon in first round intentions and if he gets through to the second round against Le Pen, he would win very comprehensively. I'm going to put all my eggs in the Macron basket in 2017 purely because it would be more interesting.
1: I mean, you yeah, know, obviously Macron is, is, is hunky and, and, and Blairite, much like myself. But uh, I'm just paused to allow for laughter. Say, I, didn't, I didn't say
2: anything. I said but, nothing. But
1: um, he's to the right of where Hollande ran, right? He he may end up governing to a, into a place fairly similar to where Hollande ended up. But in any case, if you'd said to someone who had truly bought into Francois Hollande, and now I think about it, was there anyone who really did? He was sort of the, oh, God, DSK's exploded, let's let's jump on this bandwagon so we can get through the election and, and, and defeat the right. I don't think if you said to any of those people, at the end, this pretty boy centrist who none of you have heard of yet is going to be president, they'd have go, oh goody. Yeah. Um, it, it's a bit like whatever that's happens the, Come France, on, that is
2: the lesson of 2016, is that you will take the least worst option.
1: I mean, a lot of the time, people have just been taking the worst option. Yeah, though, that's what it? I
2: mean. That you don't, don't you know, this um, is the le- surely the lesson is you can't hang around for the perfect candidate. Um, Sometimes you just have to vote against someone.
1: Yeah, I, but I, I just think then if if the if the offer you were making to Jeremy Corbyn was you'll you'll be prime minister for five years, you'll become a national laughing stock, your party will disintegrate, and in the end, like Tony Blair will set up a new party and beat you. That's that's not really I I don't think he would say oh goody where do I sign and that is to I mean obviously all comparisons across countries are mostly odious and that is a particularly bad one but just
2: yeah let's quickly talk about Donald Trump and the leaks that have been come out Mother Jones reported just before the election that there was a file that was being passed around intelligence agencies had gone to John McCain, Harry Reid in the Senate had also seen it which was alleging that the Russians had got a very big dossier uh, of allegations against Trump that they were kind of using essentially his compromat they were using as to, to blackmail him. No one had actually kind of reported the specific allegations of that but we do know that it probably informed the letter that Harry Reid wrote making accusations that you know Putin and Russia specifically wanted Trump to win and had done you know deliberate hacks around that. The thing that obviously made Twitter explode is the fact that BuzzFeed published the whole document which comes from an ex-MI6 uh, intelligent agent which was initially prepared as opposition res- research on Trump by his Republican opponents and, and then Funded a bit by some Democrats as well. And they've spoken to various people in Russia. The bit that's kind of everybody can't get over because it's kind of so called blimey is this allegation that Trump went to the Ritz Carlton Hotel in. Moscow found the bed that President and Michelle Obama had slept in, and because he hates them, he'd hired prostitutes to do uh, a urination show, that's how we decided to describe this, in order to sort of defile it. Which, let's be honest, is great punning material. I mean, is there going to be a live stream of his press conference, Water sports gate. it was all that. Okay,
1: there. We, we, don't, we don't need any more.
2: Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. But my question with it is, I'm really worried that actually publishing the dossier will backfire because Trump's response to it has just been to go, this is fake news, it's a witch hunt. Actually, he literally said the words, it's like Nazi Germany. A lot of urination there, clearly. And I worry that it's kind of going to let him, even though I think there are interesting questions about his relationship with Russia, by bundling that all together into a big package of allegations in one dossier, I worry it's going to allow him actually, weirdly, less scrutiny.
1: So I'm not sure about that for a couple of reasons. So obviously a large chunk of the of the dossier is very similar to curveball the you know the uh, Iraqi informant who underpinned a lot of the case for going to war with Iraq and most of that testimony turned out to be fairly bogus. And it does feel like there are lots of holes in this leak. We we know that than the Russians wanted to target the Democrats. They wanted Trump to win. As I've said before because the margin was so small basically everything from Hillary's own unpopularity to Comey's letter to to the way that the leaks were covered. Yeah, the, and the Comey's of- lack
2: of letter about this, right? So if the FBI director, James Comey, writes a letter saying, I'm reopening the investigation into Hillary Clinton because I've got these extra emails from Anthony Weiner, and then closes it again, he could very much have written a letter that said, I'm opening an investigation into these allegations about Donald Trump, but didn't.
1: Yeah. So because of that, basically everything everything matters because everything could have changed the outcome. And that goes for campaign errors in the Clinton machine as well, right? But Hillary's private email server and the emails that were hacked by the Russians were completely unrelated. And one of the things I and a lot of people got wrong about the election was that we went, oh, no one really understands this email scandal, therefore it won't matter. It turned out that because people didn't really understand what the email scandal involved, it meant that whenever they heard hacking and emails, they thought it was all part of one big story instead of two entirely unrelated stories. So actually, lots of noise about Russia probably doesn't harm Trump's American opponents all that much. And in terms of the bigger ongoing fight, which is whether or not Rex Tillerson, his preferred choice for Secretary of State, is confirmed, anything which keeps the idea that that he is Russia's buddy on the agenda means it is slightly harder for Tillerson to get confirmed. It emboldens and gives cover to Republican Russia hawks to vote with the Democrats against Rex Tillerson.
2: But this is because Rex Tillerson got a, like a medal from got Vladimir a, yeah, Putin. A, right?
1: a medal from Vladimir Putin. And I think one of the, the the stages of Trump denial, right, is there is a certain type of liberal and a certain type of left-winger who hasn't, I think, quite absorbed what a good outcome from the Trump presidency actually looks like. So, you know, you see it when someone says, oh god, I hope they impeach him and we get Pence, and someone goes but Pence is just as bad for, for women, the right to choose, gay people, ethnic minorities in America, all of which is true, but Pence won't accidentally cause a nuclear exchange with China because he doesn't have the disposition to be president, which is a real live risk with Trump. So even though whoever Trump's secretary of state is will be horrendously right-wing, there are options which aren't Tillerson, who are probably better for global security. This is the thing, this, that there is quite a big difference between a disaster and is a disaster for America and a disaster for any hope for a global deal to tackle climate change than there is for a disaster which ends with nuclear winter. That's my cheery thought for the day.
2: Thank you for that. And now for a section we like to call backbencher of the week because it's about a backbencher of the week we were G- up
1: all week coming <laughs> out,
2: we? um julia rampon our staggers editor has joined us um, and in classic new statesman podcast slightly ham-fisted style technically your pick is not a backbencher
0: yeah and i felt a bit rude because i emailed her office today just to say has she been doing anything of note that i missed and i was like you know as a backbencher and also leader of your own party but so don't leave <laughs> us in suspense anymore who have you picked caroline lucas And the reason is, well, we've only had a few days of the new season anyway, so there hasn't been much time for other backbenchers to let loose. But Caroline has written a piece for the Staggers about free movement. We've seen a lot of reaction to it. And I think it's very timely because it comes the day after Jeremy Corbyn seemed to fumble over what he actually thought. And she's basically written a defense of free movement. The reasons I think it's interesting is A, it argues that there are economic benefits to free movement, which is actually a long-standing argument we've kind of forgotten for the last six months. And the other part of it is that it's actually not a neoliberal economic argument that she's making it's more about um, people filling jobs that otherwise wouldn't be filled and the idea that the pressures on low wages can be dealt with using other policies like raising the minimum wage.
2: Now, Stephen, you wrote, uh, I think, a Facebook note on your Facebook page, which people obviously can sign up, saying you were worried that Labour's poll ratings floor was not, there was no floor, there was only a kind of plunging lift. And one of your reasons for this was saying that at the last election in 2015, Natalie Bennett was Green Leader. Now, there are two leaders of the Green Party, one of whom is Caroline Lucas, and you find her quite impressive.
1: So obviously Labour's poll rating is bad by sort of any, any means. We've had a, an immigration policy for Labour which basically feels like an invitation to every party out there to come and take their votes. And during the last election in Labour's post-mortem, one of the things which was basically clear is Natalie Bennett would go on TV and the Green vote would go down. She was a net gain to the Labour campaign. During the short campaign, Tim Fan, Caroline Lucas, Jonathan Bartley, her co-leader, will all be given a media platform that they just don't get outside of election time. It feels to me highly unlikely that Caroline Lucas being on TV more will be bad for the Green Party. In fact, it feels very likely to me that it will be good for the Green Party.
2: So um, Um, here's a question that I think people ask me sometimes now, which is kind of given Corbyn's stances, where is left for the Green Party to go? I mean, you've mentioned migration. Greens have a kind of pretty unequivocally pro-migration per se, not just meanie mouse pro-free movement. What are other things that are kind of distinctive Green Party policies?
0: I guess one that Caroline was putting forward in this argument is the idea of an economic policy that in some ways has overlaps with Labour but I guess the Green Party as a small party is able to perhaps make more purist arguments. So, for example, she's very interested in ideas of basic income and raising the minimum wage quite substantially to a true living wage. And I think she does have a point that one thing that surprises people is the lowest paid in the country have actually seen their wages rise, and that is exactly because of government policy increasing the minimum wage. The Greens are also very radical on the idea of the housing market. I remember the, their manifesto in 2015 had some quite surprisingly <laughs> extreme views, I suppose, if, if you're a mainstream economist on what you would do. They have, speak very much to renters as well, I think more than the Labour Party does.
2: Mm-hmm. They're interesting. They've got some interesting kind of splits emerging within them though on sex work and gender and things like that because they have got a pretty, I'm trying to think of a non-pejorative way to say this, a pretty tumblery wing shall we say, you know, people the kind of person who would use the word swerf, uh, unironically, which is for those of you who don't know sex worker, exclusionary radical feminist whereas traditionally Caroline Lucas has been a supporter of the Nordic model, the idea that you criminalise sex buyers but not the people who sell sex. But I think that, I think there's a, there's a really interesting question for the Green Party about everyone assumed that Corbyn had eaten their lunch. The Labour Party was now going to move into a space where the Green Party was. But it kind of ignores the fact that actually there is space to the left of Labour and also to be kind of interestingly radical in different ways. Well, I think
1: the problem for Labour is they're the only party in the United Kingdom which has to win in all of the, apart from Northern Ireland, where they don't compete they have to win in every kingdom of the united kingdom right the greens only need to win in places like brighton or certain bits of lambeth or hackney right they aren't they are not aiming to be a genuinely national force and and whichever one of the Bristol constituencies they're strong in, and I always get them confused. I
2: think West, but I don't know. I think that might they might. Half of Debonate. them have
1: got West in the title in, though, because because yeah. their their boundary re- review is maddening, and it's it's particularly irritating because Bristol has so many lovelily named places. You know, you could have Bristol Montpellier. You could have all right. Bristol, stop sucking Bristol. up to Bristol. <laughs> but you know, I'm just saying. Okay, um, um,
2: but so um, but, is there anything that Caroline's doing this year that will coming up soon that we should be watching out for? Julian? Well, the
0: other interesting thing is her views on defence because. The Green Party hasn't really had much of a defence policy at all, and um, Caroline did another op-ed for us just before Christmas that was a bit more controversial with our readers, perhaps. But it's actually very interesting because it wasn't; it was just saying what a lot of Labour people would be saying that she thought that there ha- should be considerations of some kinds of humanitarian supplies to Syria. But that in itself is quite a big step for the Green Party. So I think on the one hand you're seeing a fringe party perhaps mature and, as Stephen says, become a s- more Credible voice on TV, but on the other hand, even that article did divide the opinion on it.
2: Well, thank you very much. Looking forward to seeing you next week. Well, let's we'll have a real backbencher because we're gonna. Luckily, what what can an angry green really do to us? They're lovely people. They won't be mean. But
0: thank you, Judy, for joining us. Here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact.
1: Now it's time for a little section we like to call... You
2: ask us! People like that. I had a tweet by someone who said that they like that.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm speaking for the silent majority.
2: <laughs> okay. Um, this week, uh, lots of questions. Actually, a surprising number of questions, which I was pleased about. Um, and people have really been reading on the website too. Our pieces about Northern Ireland and what's happened there. So, the Deputy First Minister Martin McGuinness has resigned, and under the terms of the power-sharing agreement, that means if Sinn Fein don't appoint another Deputy First Minister within seven days, um, Arlene Foster of the DUP has to resign as well triggering an election mere months after the last one so
1: she has resigned because of how the power sharing works he resigns she resigns right there's there's parity of esteem that is notionally the same job one of the issues which I imagine we will get into in this segment is that that parity of esteem sometimes doesn't necessarily exist in reality there are lots of people in Sinn Féin who feel that under her predecessor that parity of esteem has not really been there but they both are automatically. One of them resigns, the other one resigns, unless there is a replacement. Uh, yeah, that's what I mean. Unless, unless they put, yeah.
2: unless they put someone else up, then by default, like it's over, right? And they have to call an election. It's one of those things where you think, wow, this is really old fashioned scandal right it's quite hard to grasp it's called cash for ash right so it's about renewable energy and basically they set the maximum amount that anyone could claim way too high so loads of people so there was stuff
1: so no so idea of the renewable heat initiative was it was meant to encourage you to switch from non-renewable sources of energy there are a couple of problems the first is there was no cap to how much energy you could claim back The second is there was no requirement for this energy to be replacement energy usage. So let's take this lovely catacomb that we are recording in. Obviously, it has some heating now.
2: So you could just turn all the heaters on full blast and as long as we were being powered by like a dam or a wind turbine we could it could rain money. You
1: could could rain money but let's say for example that you've got a cold basement which you you just store paper in so you don't have the heating on. It it is not a saving in terms of energy consumption for you to install a new renewable energy boiler and turn it on 365 days a year. But under the Renewable Heat Initiative or Cash for Ash you were paid to do this right? There were businesses which were planning to install and they're in some which have installed heaters in storage rooms, heaters in rooms which have no people in and have no plans to have you know, in order to get the money. So as well as it costing a phenomenal amount of money, right, it will cost about a billion pounds over twenty years. Having to find a billion over those twenty years is, is a, a big, big deal. And the reason why it has become politically alive is one that it appears that ministers realised there was a problem and tried to sit on it for a long time. Secondly, that when Arlene Foster, now the first minister, was was the minister in charge of the department responsible for the scheme when it was birthed, she and until relatively recently Sinn Fein have both been saying, "No, no, we don't want a full, a full-blooded inquiry." The case against it isn't as you you might go, "Oh, come on, you've you've spent one billion pounds through incompetence. How do you not want an inquiry? A proper sort of full-fledged inquiry, as opposed to an investigation, takes years." also costs a lot of money. So there's an argument for just having a quick investigation, which is what they did with Robinson when he was involved in Irisgate, which involved uh, payments uh, to someone who's now his ex-wife. He was completely exonerated. But he crucially stepped aside as First Minister. Arlene Foster has not. This is one of the things which is causing a lot of anger. Uh, She's said that her critics are acting out of misogyny which there unquestionably is in Northern Irish politics as there is worldwide. However, the pe- reason why people are angry is that
2: She spent all the money.
1: She spent a lot of money.
2: What's going to happen, though? This is my quote, kind of, this is the you-ask-us element of this. So we're expecting another election. People traditionally, I think, uh, political researchers, you know, people don't like being asked the same question twice, right? They don't like really frequent elections because they kind of feel like, come on, I've got stuff to do. What Do you anticipate any change in in, in how that works over there?
1: There are a couple of of fun things to, to bear in mind. So firstly, under the Northern Irish system, they have mandatory power sharing, which means... The first and the second party get to pick the first and the deputy minister respectively and then they get to pick from the portfolios going on down. And then the ministerial posts are decided by the Dehant system. So the third, the fourth, they also get to pick. But the only ones which have to go into government together are the first and the second. And if they don't, then you don't get a government direct rule from Westminster comes back in. So,
2: but also to add to the complication about this is the fact that there is as yet no answer on freedom of movement and the single market, and the fact that there is a land border with a the land Republic. border with the Republic, and which is, it's um, written into the Good Friday Agreement, I think, as well, isn't it, to the human membership of the European of Court of, the European
1: human... of Human Human Rights. So, yes yeah, so there are lots of there are lots of other important political issues which mean that it is a tense time, and the peace process is under more strain than it has been for some time. So it's not a great time to have an election. There are a couple of interesting questions, right? So there's also as well as all this, there's boundary changes in the in the size of the STB constituency. So so everyone is going to lose some seats anyway, which makes it slightly harder for the DUP to lose their first place. But it's not impossible, right? And there are a couple of interesting questions. Mostly in Northern Ireland, the voting is on fairly sectarian lines. But in Irisgate, and we've seen this with other sort of scandals where local councillors have resigned or whatever, there was a massive swing in Belfast East to Naomi Long, the candidate of the Alliance, who are a non-sectarian party. They Their sister party is, is the Liberal Democrats. Massive swing. She took the seat. Lost it again in 2015. But if something like that happens again, does the DUP surrender sec first place? Possibly. The true unionist voice, who are kind of like an ultra, ultra unionist party, uh, have been making a lot of hay and they've been in the news criticising both the DUP and Sinn Féin over the scandal. Do they peel off some votes from the DUP? Arlene Foster has not covered herself in glory at all in how she has covered the scandal. I mean, I think that is the really important thing to note, that at any point the DUP would be in a stronger position now if they had just thrown their hands up and gone, do you know what, it's really not good than we had this uncapped scheme where people were literally installing boilers. I mean, <laughs> just like it is like a classic example of how, if you're right wing, you just get away with any old shit, isn't it? I mean, like, well, imagine, if, imagine had, well, if Jeremy well, 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 Corbyn <laughs> wanted to, like,
2: we definitely haven't got time to get into that argument. Um, so let me that we can we can make that another. We can book ourselves for you and you ask us in future, which is can if you're on the right get away with any old shit. <laughs> You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-host, Stephen Bush. It's produced by India Book, and our theme music is Devil with the Devil by The Underscore Orchestra. Why not subscribe to the New Statesman magazine? If you do, you'll get not only a column from me this week, but double Stephen Bush. He's interviewed Diane Abbott, and he's also writing the politics column. Just visit subscribe.newstatesman.com.